0: It's great to see you all. Whether you are joining us here in flesh and blood or you are joining us virtually, from somewhere around Palm Beach or around the world uh, we are uh, we're thrilled that you're with us especially if you're somebody who's newer among us whether you're you're new to the area or you're here with here begrudgingly with a friend and can't quite get why it is that you're even in a church service we're glad that you're here and we hope that this place might come to feel like home to you so a couple of things that I'll mention to that end first of all as pastor Ron mentioned earlier we have those welcome cards that are in the pews in front of you if you're newer with us and fill one of those babies out and put it in the offering when it passes by you later in the service or just drop it at the welcome kiosk in the lobby on the way out we'll follow up with you and just provide you with whatever info is helpful to you if you if you're curious about how you can connect more around here have questions or etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, lastly I'll also I'll say that uh, we are uh, we've just started small groups a couple of weeks ago and they're going they're gonna meet throughout the fall season they they happen around all the neighborhoods kind of around Palm Beach, and there are both in-person and virtual formats. We'd love to encourage you to connect to a group if you haven't. So it's the best way to meet some other folks around here and make connections with other with other people in our community. That's kind of the main way that our church connects with each other. So, as as Ron said, if you go to the website and just click the small groups button, you'll see a listing of groups there. You can fill in your information and see what what works the best for you. So, we'd love to encourage you to do that. And then, lastly, this month is also the month when we do as a church our annual stewardship campaign. So all of the mission and ministry service to the city and county and world that we do as a church is funded in entirety by the folks who are a part of our community. And so we're encouraging everybody who's a part of First Presbyterian over the months of October and November to consider how you might participate financially in what God's doing around here. So if you're somebody that is already a part of First Presbyterian, we mailed a paper version of our annual stewardship brochure to you this past week. That has info in it on all the different things that our church does, when you give to First Presbyterian, where that goes, and all those kinds of things, as well as a as well as well a response card. That info will be available in the weeks to come in the lobby, and then also online as well too. So we'd love to encourage you to check that out. If you have any questions about any of that, our any of our church leaders will be happy to follow up with you. And we'd love to encourage you to start thinking and praying about how you might partner with us this year. So this year we're seeking to have 320 households who are a part of our church. So whether you're an individual or you and your family, have uh, 320 households commit to financial partnership together for totaling $1.5 million in pledges. And so we'd love to encourage you if you're you're a follower of Jesus and a part of our community to start thinking and praying about how you might participate this, this coming year. So With that said, we're going to turn to the scriptures. We are, this fall, doing a series called A Meal with Jesus. Many of the most significant things that Jesus says and does actually happen around tables. And so this fall, we're exploring many of the meals that Jesus has with people in the book of Luke. So today, the passage that we'll listen to is sort of a part two of the meal story that we listened to last Sunday. So today's scripture reading will be from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, and then 12 through twenty and so I'm going to pray for us and then I'll invite you to listen together with me to the scriptures so let's pray oh God may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight through Christ our rock and our redeemer we pray amen Friends, listen with open ears now to the book that we love from Luke 14. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then in front of him, there was a man with dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not. But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of land and I am going out to see it. "'Please accept my regrets.' Another said, "'I've bought five yoke of oxen "'and I'm going to try them out. "'Please accept my regrets.' And another said, "'I've just been married "'and therefore I cannot come.' So the slave returned and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and said to the slave, "'Go out into the streets and lanes of the town "'and bring in the poor.' the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you and I are friends, quote unquote, on the internet, you, you may know that on many weeks, at some point during the week, I will post what I call my sermon prep soundtrack for the week. This is because though I, you will never catch me singing in the band or choir or playing an instrument, I do have a real and deep love for music and do have an addictive fondness for vinyl records in particular. As a matter of fact, when my wife Monica and I were deciding where between a couple of different places our family might move to, we'd, we had as one of our stipulations that we were not going to move anywhere that did not have a vinyl record store. So you all have Rust and Wax Records in West Palm Beach to thank for the, the heirs' presence in Palm Beach County now. Uh, we... Uh, oftentimes during the week, uh, what I'm listening to doesn't necessarily have any overt connection to either the passage that we're talking about or anything like that, but sometimes it does or or is connected to either what's going on in life or to the time of year. So for example, oftentimes in December, I'll get out my copy of the Cambridge choir uh, the Cambridge College Choir's Christmas Mass and I'll turn that on in December and listen to that as we make our way towards Christmas time most of the time when I'm returning from vacation and I know it's going to be the first day in a while that I've opened my email inbox I'll, I'll put on the turntable an album by an indie rock band that I love called The National that's entitled Trouble Will Find Me so that I can listen to that while I look at my email for the first time And this past week, the the album that I listened to as I was thinking about this story was the Rolling Stones classic record, Beggar's Banquet, because that's just such a perfect title for the story that Jesus tells here. If you were with us last Sunday, you know that this story is a continuation on a dinner party that Jesus is attending at some religious leaders' homes that is that is wound tight with tension by this point. Jesus has Already to this point in the dinner, you know, you know if you read the, the first part of the passage that we looked at last week, he is, he is already at this dinner, healed somebody on the Sabbath, which all of the religious leaders he's eating with think is a no-no. And then he's turned to his host and said, when you do a dinner like this, you shouldn't invite all the well-to-do, respectable people who are sitting here. You ought to invite everybody who's an outsider, poor people, crippled people, lame people, blind people. In that tense moment, Somebody, hearing Jesus mention the resurrection, he blurts out, well, it'll be be blessed for anybody who can eat bread in God's kingdom. That poor soul is trying to alleviate the tension in the room. This is kind of like when you're sitting down to Thanksgiving with your entire extended family and somebody happens to bring up an article about critical race theory that they just read. And your peacekeeping great aunt blurts out, Who wants pie? Or did the Seminoles lose this past weekend or something like that just to try and make the moment go away? That's what's happening right now. But Jesus to follow, after mentioning the resurrection and then somebody mentioning the great day of God's kingdom, he goes on to tell this story about God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is the Bible's language for, for the future hope of the people of God. It's the language that the scriptures use to talk about this great long promised day when the God who made the world would step into the world once and for all to put it right. And in the story that Jesus tells, in a way that we miss because we have a lot of cultural distance from the first century, he is like a jazz master riffing on an old classic that everyone around the table would have known. For all of the all of the people who would have been at that table with Jesus, they would have been deeply familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. And so when Jesus starts to tell a story about a noble person giving a great dinner and inviting many people, everybody right away would have understood that Jesus here is giving his take on a central passage in the Hebrew scriptures from the prophet Isaiah. One of the main places in the Old Testament that talks about what the kingdom of God would look like, what this great day was going to be like, is in the prophet Isaiah chapter 25. In Isaiah 25, there's this this expansive cosmic vision of what that great day would be like. And here's how Isaiah pictures it. Isaiah writes, on this mountain, on the mountain of Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. A feast of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine that's strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the sheet that is spread over all peoples, the sheet that is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the vision that everyone would have understood Jesus to be riffing on as he starts to tell this story. And it's hard for us to really understand how stunning and even shocking this story is that Jesus tells without taking a moment to put ourselves in the sandals, so to speak, of the people who would have been sitting at that table. There would have been a set of expectations that the learned, Bible-believing, clean-living church folk who were sitting with Jesus would have had for what Jesus would be saying when he talked about the kingdom of God. We know this because we have several, we have several writings from from Jewish culture, from Jesus' time, that explain the various different beliefs that people had about what the day of God's kingdom was going to be like. And people would have been listening for Jesus to repeat these things, talking about what God's kingdom was like. And so so that you can understand how shocking what Jesus says really is, I wanna I share with you a couple of these other particular takes on what that picture from Isaiah would look like look like or who would be at it. So, so for example, there was a document called the Targum, which was a translation of the Bible from its original Hebrew into another language called Aramaic that had a whole bunch of interpretation and commentary on the Hebrew scriptures. And they, they comment on this passage, the writers of the Targum, and here's how they talk about the vision from Isaiah. This is what they say. Yahweh of hosts will make for all the peoples in this mountain a meal, and although they supposed it is an honor, it will be a shame for them and great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. And so that view says it's going to be a great feast, but for all the non-Jewish people, for all the people outside Jewish faith and practice, it's it's going to be a day of plagues and death. That's not gonna be a party. It's gonna be plagues and death for them. There's also another another book that was written about a century before Jesus lived called The Book of Enoch that also has its own interpretation and commentary of of the day of God's kingdom that's pictured in Isaiah 25. And it talks about that great banquet with the Messiah and with God, and it affirms that non-Jewish people, Gentile people, were going to be there as well too. But here's the catch. The angel of death would also be there and would use his sword to destroy all the Gentile people. The banquet hall would run with blood and all the believers would be obliged to wade through the gore of their dead bodies to reach the banquet hall where they would sit down to the meal with God. So this is kind of like the Stephen King version of this great future. Uh, There was also another community, another Jewish community called the Essenes that had their own, had their own take that called the Messianic Rule. And that one says that no non-Jewish people would be a part of God's kingdom at all, and that only pious people, only people who were religiously observant who kept the rules would be invited to this feast. It says, then the Messiah of Israel shall come, and the chiefs of the clans of Israel shall sit before him, each in the order of his dignity, according to his place and their camps and marches. In the same scroll, it specifically says that no one will be a, will be invited to the feast of God's kingdom who is smitten in the flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. Recognize that list, the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. This is who's not invited. Now, that might, that might seem strange to us, these writings. But broadly speaking, across human time and culture, this is the vision of religion. That God will reward me and approve of my tribe, my people. God will welcome people who have their act together and people who are blemish free. In other words, that God's kingdom is a dinner for the deserving. That was what people were, were wanting Jesus to say. Now, I want to pause and acknowledge as we sit here and listen to this story in the 21st century, that as we listen to Jesus tell this story, especially if you're somebody for whom you, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a follower of Jesus or, or you've been away from faith and church for a long time, that this can sound like an empty invitation. And here's why I say that. The modern Western secular story of the world, it says that human hopes like the one articulated here, for, for God, for some ultimate future that's beyond death, that these things are, are an illusion. Philosophers call this the grand projection theory. It's like somebody who's, who's thirsty in a desert, who's having a hallucination where they think, that they, they think that they see an oasis with water, when in reality, all that's ahead of them is just another, another hill and gully of sand. So if that's you, this is what I wanna help you notice. Simply having a desire doesn't make it true, but the having of a desire also does not make it not true either. In other words, just because somebody is parched and aching for water in a desert does not mean that water does not exist. And to the contrary, the deepest desires that we have, we have because we desire true things. When you desire water, you desire it because water actually really does exist and you really do need it. One of my favorite writers is a writer named John Updike. He wrote a number of books of short fiction and several novels, and he wrote for a long time for the New Yorker and was also a follower of Jesus. He called himself the token Christian at the New Yorker. And near the end of his life, he wrote a memoir where in one of his final chapters, he talks about the Christian belief in the afterlife. And he answers that question of, isn't it a selfish projection to believe in in an afterlife? And this is what he says. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, the yearning for an afterlife is the opposite of selfish. It is love and praise for the world that we are privileged in this complex interval of light. To witness an experience. In other words, he's saying Christians believe we desire God, we desire a future beyond death with God because we're made in the image of a God who made us for Himself, and because we're made in the image of a God who made this world and loves this world. And so, God's kingdom is not, according to Jesus, simply a dinner for the deserving, and it's not an empty invitation. Jesus in this story is announcing the good news, the gospel, that God's kingdom is a banquet for beggars. Jesus starts this story in the familiar way. Somebody's giving a dinner, he invites many people. But then there's this turn where people offer what what they would have realized in the ancient world were slapstick excuses. These could feel sort of reasonable to us, but if you lived in the ancient world, you'd realize that this this is slapstick comedy that Jesus is engaging in. A nobleman in the ancient world would announce a great feast they were having a long, long time in advance. So nobody would be caught off guard and say, oh gosh, I didn't realize I'm just getting married today, so I can't come to dinner tonight. No one would would do that. And no, in an agrarian society, no farmer would buy a piece of land, sight unseen, and then be like, oh, sorry, I can't come this evening. I've got to go check out the land that I just bought. Or I've got to go see if these oxen that I just bought can actually pull anything or not. People would have realized this is, this is slapstick. These are ludicrous excuses. This is like being invited to, to a grand dinner at the home of some Palm Beach tycoon. And then after you've had hors d'oeuvres on the patio while you're looking over the ocean, right as the hostess comes out to say that dinner's now ready and everybody's invited to the formal dining room, saying, saying to the whole group, oh gosh, I just realized I forgot to wash my hair. I gotta go. Or I gotta go feed my cat. I'm out of here. This is the kind of thing that these people are doing. But in the stunning turn, anger at these insincere and foolish refusals, it means welcome to undeserving outsiders. Jesus explicitly names the people that his contemporaries said are not allowed in God's kingdom. Jesus' point is that in God's kingdom, you bring in people who are on the outside. In God's kingdom, you clear a seat at the table for people who bring nothing to the table. Jesus here is picturing for us that God's kingdom is dinner not for the deserving, but for the undeserving. It is a cosmic banquet of grace for people who are beggars of any sort, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, or in any other way. God's kingdom, Jesus says, Is a banquet of grace for people who know that they're beggars. In the book of Luke, Jesus tells four stories about hospitality. And interestingly, all of them occur in what scholars call the travel narrative part of the book of Luke. It's a long middle section in the book of Luke that narrates Jesus' journey from his hometown area to the city of Jerusalem, where ultimately he would die. Why is that? I think Jesus tells these stories about God's lavish welcome on the way to his death in Jerusalem because Jesus here is en route to starting the cosmic party that is pictured and promised by Isaiah. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, He would share a last meal of rich food and well-aged wines with his closest friends where he promises his followers then and now that there would be a day that we would eat and drink with him in God's kingdom forever. Jesus then would go to an unjust death on a cross and he would die to destroy the power of death and to take away the disgrace of your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world forever. And then on the first Easter morning, he would rise as God's promise that you and I and all of God's creation one day would also have a resurrection when death will finally be undone and where God will finally wipe every tear from every eye forever. This is the good news that Jesus is picturing with this story of a banquet for beggars. So I want to conclude simply by drawing out a couple of practical invitations for us here and now as we we watch that dinner party unfold in Luke 14. First, I hope you hear in this story an invitation to the party and an invitation to remember how we got to the party as well too. The point of this parable is that nobody who thought that they had a proper right to be at that party wound up at it. And everybody who had no business being there wound up there. The point is that, as one scholar says, you and I are going to be dealt with in spite of our deservings, not according to them. And when, that, when that good news, the good news of God's welcome to outsiders like us, when, when that's the center of your life, that good news, that gospel, it, it, it ought to shape a deep and abiding humility in your life. Oftentimes, especially if you're somebody for whom you've been at this for a while, after you're a follower of Jesus for a while, you can, you can lose touch with this dynamic. You can think that you have a seat at the table with God really because, you, because you've done a pretty good job of, of learning a lot of things that you're supposed to learn, of keeping your nose clean, of not, not letting your life get off track. But the insistence of this story is that you and I, we have a seat at God's table because we are undeserving and because God's gracious and loves to throw a party for people who don't deserve it. Uh, this, uh, this dynamic came home powerfully in the last moments of the great, uh, the great Christian reformer and leader Martin Luther's life. When he, was, when he was ill and on his deathbed, he spent his final hours with one of his best friends and when he, was, when he knew he was near death, his best friend asked him, Martin, do you want to go to your grave expounding the same, uh, the same teaching about Christ that you've been, you've been proclaiming for such a long time? And while, without wavering, he said this. This is his last words. He said, yes. And the last words of Martin Luther were this. We are beggars. This much is true. We are beggars. He was talking about this story. So this story, it ought to to shape in us a deep humility towards ourselves and a deep hopefulness in the way that we relate to other people because we believe that nobody is too far gone for the party. Uh, Second, I hope that you hear in this story an invitation to practice this party as well too. See, our call as people who follow Jesus together is to practice in the present the cosmic party that is our ultimate future. We're called to practice this party here in the present because it's our destiny forever. And so I hope that you, that you think about what it could look like for you to practice this party in the life in the life of our church community. This is why we talk a lot about wanting to be a community that exists not just for ourselves but also for our friends and neighbors uh, who need the seat, of, the seat of grace at God's table as well too. This is why we want to serve our friends and neighbors who are outsiders. One of the One of the high points of my my week this past week was having my cell phone ding while my wife and I were sitting in the small group that we're a part of as we were talking about Jesus' teachings about hospitality. I got a ding on my phone, and as I looked at the picture, I saw that it was sent to me by a woman who's a part of our church community, who's leading an ESL class that we do to to serve neighbors around us who are immigrants. And it was a full table of people from Brazil and Thailand and Colombia and Ecuador. That's what we want to be about as a community. I want you to think about what it could look like for you to to practice this party in your own neighborhood, around around your own table. And I want to invite you to think about what it could look like to experience that party as you come to, to this table, to the table of the Lord as well too. Followers of Jesus, we come to the communion table week by week because it is an appetizer course for us of what one writer calls the dinner party at the end of the world. It's a first first taste of our great hope of feasting with God in a healed and renewed cosmos forever. I wanna close by sharing with you some words from one of my favorite writers that makes this point in a really vivid and beautiful way. Robert Farrar Capone, was. He's, he's passed away several years ago, but he was a pastor in an Anglican church in New York, was also a biblical scholar, he wrote a number of books about, about, the, about the scriptures, and also though was a semi-professional chef and a New York Times food critic. And so he wrote a bunch of books about the Bible, but also wrote a bunch of books about how to throw a great party or, or recipe books and, and such. And one of his most enduring books is a book that he wrote called The Supper of the Lamb. That's kind of one part recipe book, one part book on how to throw a great dinner party, and one part spiritual memoir. And in the last chapter of that book, he has has a a chapter called The Long Session, which is what he calls a great dinner party where you welcome outsiders to your table. And he talks about the the spirituality of the long session and how it is a small picture of the grand cosmic party that is our destiny as followers of Jesus. And so I'm gonna close by just letting you listen to how he describes this. The end of the book, he says, with this, I leave you. From this point on, a well-made dinner party is on its own. And then he says, the road to heaven does not run from this world, but through it. The longest session, the longest dinner party of all is no discontinuation of these sessions here, but a lifting of them all by priestly love. It is a place for men and women, not ghosts, for the risen gorgeousness of the new earth and for the glorious earthiness of the true Jerusalem. Eat well then, he says. Between our love and his priesthood, he makes all things new. Our last home will be home indeed. So friends, uh, I wanna invite you to join and experience and also to practice the beggar's banquet that is our great future. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.